Hello and welcome to Canalcast, a podcast exploring how our charity, the Canal River Trust, helps make life better by water. I'm Lewis Howell, Canal River Trust Council member and chair of the Youth Engagement Advisory Group. In this series of podcasts, I'll be travelling around all 2,000 miles of our canal network. Along the way, I'll be talking to key experts at the Canal and River Trust to discover why this amazing charity needs support now more than ever to tackle some of the biggest challenges we face. From our health to our economy, from our city spaces to wildlife and climate change, we'll discover the critical role canals can play in shaping all of our futures as well as understand just how vital and vulnerable they are. Canalcast gives you a chance to meet some of the people working so hard behind the scenes for a charity that makes these beautiful, relaxing spaces open to everyone, every day. Come with us as we discover why your local canal is so vital to us all. In today's canal cast, we're looking at nature and wildlife in our canals and on our towpaths and riverbanks. I'll be learning how these blue and green corridors connect nature all around the country and how they help give people a rare and precious connection to wildlife, especially in our cities. I'll also be exploring the many plants, insects, fish, amphibians, birds and animals that make home on our canals and add to the biodiversity of our riverbanks, towpaths and hedgerows. And we'll be looking at the role millions of us can play in helping wildlife come right to our doorsteps alongside our canal. Let's begin by welcoming Peter Birch, who has worked at a senior level in the Canal and River Trust in numerous environmental roles for many years now. Peter, we hear a lot about nature being in trouble or in crisis, but for someone like me, who grew up in the city, you know, I'm from London, I'm from South London, Lewisham, there's no canals in my area, do you know what I'm saying, Peter? Like, honestly, where I've grown up, there's not one canal, I apologise, man. So I didn't really spend time in nature like that. And, you know, I I didn't even know where my local canal was, if I'm being 100% honest. So for someone like me who might be listening, can you explain why nature is in trouble and what canals can do to help tackle it? Hi, Lewis. Yeah, sure. So nature really is part of the attraction for our waterways. And so we here at Canal and River Trust feel that we've got uh, a role to play in helping wildlife, just as we all do. Um, so London's actually quite a green city and you will have had some spaces there for you. But canals and rivers are a really important part of, of what nature can offer for people because they're so accessible. There's eight million people living within one kilometre of, of one of our waterways. But as you said, Lewis, wildlife and nature really are under threat in this country and and everywhere in fact and it's something that we all need to do something about and the problem really is about how we manage our land and our spaces and this has been going on for decades this isn't a recent problem it's something perhaps that we're all starting to wake up to more now and what the records show is that all types of animals and wildlife and natural spaces are declining and shrinking And so the solution to all of that is for us to reverse that trend. And that is something that here in the Canal and River Trust, we think our waterways will have a really strong role in. 
We need more space for wildlife. We need those spaces to be bigger and of better quality. And critically, we need to reconnect all of those spaces together so the wildlife has space to move. And that's where our canals, although we haven't got any near you there in South London, Lewis, that's where our canals are, are really important because there's, we've got this 2,000 mile network of canals and rivers across the rest of, of, of England. And if I'm not wrong, it was the recent State of Nature report that said something like 41% of our species are in decline, which, you know, tells us a lot. That's a significant number, over two-fifths. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's something that's so easy to overlook. If we were aware that 41% of our species were in decline, we'd start to then understand how that does impact so many of us and will impact generations to come. Um, I just want to touch on something that you mentioned. So you said, you know, over 8 million people live about a stone's throw from the canal. We're talking about less than a kilometre, as you mentioned. So to what extent does then the Canal and River Trust actually go about ensuring that we can join nature up again? And why is that important? Well, so connection is is particularly important, both for nature and for people, because, as I said, the the problem for nature, the, the trouble that nature is in over decades of, of decline is because it's been divided up and, and doesn't have space to move and, and grow. And the issue for people as well is that we're losing our connection with those green spaces, too. So the fact that our waterways are so accessible, it, it's that proximity to that closeness to people and that accessibility that the can, our canals and rivers are generally flat uh, really good accessible paths it's a really easy space to come and be close to wildlife and as you said Lewis there's all kinds of wildlife there on the canals and rivers that you can get really close to and if you just stand or sit and, and take the time there then you will see things like herons and kingfishers and ducks and, and coots and and, uh, and dragonflies and so on because they are all there we just need to take the time to visit them and, and appreciate them because there's an awful lot of studies being done over the last 10 years about how um, getting into green space, being close to nature, even if it is just a duck, just feeding the ducks down by the canal or going to look at the swans, that that's connecting with nature and it's something that we don't actually take enough time to do. But there's loads of studies that show that that's massively important, both for our physical health and our mental well-being. But it's absolutely critical for wildlife as well. Um, so animals need a certain space to live in. Um, and if we don't give them that space, then they're not going to flourish and they're not going to thrive. So an example would be otters. Adult otters need a range of tens of miles across in order to have enough space to live and to find enough food for them to, to thrive and, and, and breed and, and build the population. Now, obviously, with all the other demands that we place on land in this country, both for, for food to grow and spaces for us to live, it's not possible for us to simply rewild the entire countryside and give it back to nature. And that's where green corridors become really important, um, because one of the ways that we can make more space for nature and help people connect with wildlife is by linking those spaces together. And that's something that canals and rivers already do and do fantastically for us it's creating those little green blue ribbons that link up the parks and the nature reserves and the wildlife sites and the woodland and the other wild spaces and that's a role that we here at the canal and river trust see our waterways doing really really well at because they they weren't built for wildlife they were built over 200 years ago to for industrial purposes to carry goods they were the motorways of their day but now their key function is about recreation and leisure for people and wildlife is a key part of that value it's it's one of the reasons why people enjoy coming to the waterways so it's really important that the trust uh, looks after that wildlife and and that we all do our bit to improve wildlife on waterways and 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 make them do a good job for nature 
Now that is so beautiful to hear. And I'm, I'm really glad that you did mention, you know, the historic use of the canals and the fact that, you know, they weren't necessarily designed for the purposes of nature and for the protection of wildlife. But it's fantastic to know that we can go about creating that use for them and actually that the trust is taking on that responsibility because the trust is one example of an organisation that can play its part. And in the same way, that's why we're actually encouraging those listening to also play their part where possible. So that's fantastic to hear. I think one of the things that I'd love to hear more about as well, Peter, which, you know, selfishly for my own education, but also for those listening, is the fact that, of, of course, your job and obviously colleagues of yours will focus on the kind of stuff that revolves around wildlife. But the trust is also doing stuff relating to, you know, engineering works and even looking at how do we go about encouraging changes to, say, legislation and law and stuff like that. And that's because we have to serve many audiences, don't we? You know, we've got anglers, we've got walkers, cyclists, boaters, stuff like that. So how does the work being done by your team as it relates to, you know, wildlife or the ecology teams, the engineering teams, how does all of that come together to ensure that everybody benefits? Well, as you said, Lewis, our waterways provide lots of benefits for lots of different people and lots of different uses. Um, and we feel that that uh, here at the Canal and River Trust that no, no other charity has the types of sites that we do. And we're serving all those different uses and, and activities within our space. But nature and wildlife is one of those uses, if you like. It's one of the things that is that the waterways are now there for. It's not what they were built for, um, but they weren't really built for leisure and, and recreation either. So all those other activities that we're now putting them, them to are new modern uses for this historic infrastructure. And that's really great, as you said, because it's like sustainable development in action. It's a real model for how we should be repurposing things and making use of them in, in the modern age for, for our purposes today rather than just scrapping them and, uh, and building something brand new all the time. And so because of that, they're not fully natural. They're not wild spaces. They're, they're artificial or, or very heavily modified. And so there's an awful lot of management that we have to do uh, on here in the Trust on a day-to-day basis to keep those spaces open, safe and usable and delivering all those benefits that, that we've talked about. And we currently spend nearly £200 million a year on doing that so it's a, it's a tremendous undertaking it's an awful lot of money that, that that is needed to deliver that but it's delivering massive benefits and as you said we're doing an awful lot of work um all year round across the waterways and so there's a big role for myself and for the wider environment specialist team in advising and helping our colleagues and people who make use of the waterways on a day-to-day basis on how to look after the wildlife and and, and how to take opportunities to improve it as well so Peter, we have a nature crisis and the government says that it wants to do something to help with that. So what do you think they need to do in order to help wildlife on our canals? Yeah, thanks, Lewis. I think that's a really important question. Um, and, and I think you're right that we, we do all want nature to recover and we, we would all like to see more being spent on, on those nature recovery activities. So I think we need to go back to the four things that we said at the start would actually help nature recover. And that's where the money has got to be targeted. So the first thing was about managing spaces for wildlife. And one of the reasons that that doesn't happen so much at the moment is that often it's more expensive to manage a space for wildlife alongside all the other uses and so people just simply don't do it so I think there needs to be a way in which 
public money can be provided to all landowners and all land managers to, to manage spaces for wildlife. The other points were about bigger and better sites. And I think that particularly focuses on the, the areas that we know are really great for wildlife and have been designated that the, the government have actually said, this is an important site for wildlife, it's protected by law. I think it's not enough for those sites to just be protected. There needs to be specific funding going to all of those sites to ensure that they can be maintained, not just in their current condition, but improved, made better and made bigger so that they are really the anchor points of that nature recovery. And then the final bit we talked about, which is where canals and rivers really come into their own, is about connectivity. We said all those spaces need to be connected and linked up. And there really needs to be some focus on funding those connecting corridors, on funding infrastructure like the canals and rivers that wind across the UK and link these spaces up and actually funding specifically to do some of those other things about more places for wildlife and bigger and better wildlife particularly in those corridors. And that all costs money that at the moment, the managers of those infrastructures don't necessarily have. We're all spending, our, we're all focusing our time very much on maintaining the infrastructure, keeping these spaces safe for people. And that doesn't always leave very much money left over for looking after wildlife and nature. Amazing. We need to move from maintenance to improvement and progression. That's exactly right, mate. I love that. Because the fact of the matter is, if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. Indeed, yeah. So if we're going to get better, we have to do better. I love that. Thank you so much, Peter. So that was Peter Birch there. But let's talk about the B word for a moment. You know, we hear a lot about biodiversity. But what exactly is that? And how do canals fight the nature crisis that we've been discussing? So to find out, I took the canal cast down to lush, green and rural Kennet and Avon Canal to speak to ecologist Laura. Hey, Laura, how are you doing? Hi, Lewis. Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm, fantastic. I'm glad to be here. You know, I'm definitely glad to be here. I'll be honest, I haven't had to travel this way, I was going to say for a long time, but ever. I don't, think, I don't think I've ever been down here. So this is good stuff. Do you know what I mean? There you go. So, Laura, I'm no David Attenborough. But what kind of wildlife can you show me on this local canal? So Canet and Avon Canal is really like this wide ribbon of green and blue corridor that helps to connect up the landscape at a wider scale. And that green blue corridor means that animals can move along it really easily. On the Kennet and Avon Canal, we're really lucky to have the critically endangered water voles. We've got quite good populations of them. They live in the soft bank beside the canal. They like to dig out their burrows using their front teeth, so a bit like a JCB, like they dig these burrows out. They look a little bit like rats, so they are small and brown and furry, which I know some people find a little bit scary, but they're really cute. They've got these little ears that are tucked back and water voles have a little snub nose. So they're really cute and round and rotund, just like Ratty from Wind in the Willows. That is fantastic. So talk us, talk to us a little bit more about, you know, some of the other wildlife that we might find around, you know, not even just in this canal, but just in various different um, canals across the network and the different habitats that are being made by different wildlife. Canals are a real haven for wildlife. We support all sorts of different species. The good water quality, lots of people think that canals are dirty ditches. That's not true at all. They've got great water quality. And we can see that by the, the insects that live in the water. We have things like mayfly larvae and stonefly nymphs and freshwater shrimp. And those little tiny insects that are 
bumping around and munching on the vegetation that's growing in the water. They then provide really good food for all the different fish and those sorts of animals. So we get some really big carp and pike in our canals. We also have bream and trench, smaller um, silvery species as well. And then those fish, they provide food for the next level up. If you remember doing food chains at school, so you work your way up through the chain. So then the fish are eaten by things like the beautiful, majestic heron. And our icon of the waterways, the kingfisher, that flash of blue lightning that you might be lucky enough to catch. A tip for kingfishers, they have a very, very high-pitched, squeaky call. And you quite often hear that before you see them. So if you hear a very unusual, high-pitched bird sound, look to the water and you might be lucky enough to see this streak of lightning. So you, you've spoken to us a bit about some of the amazing wildlife that we can find, you know, either within the water itself or a feeding almost in the water. But of course, there's some wildlife slightly beyond the towpath. So, you know, when we I'm looking around here, I'm seeing, you know, we've got hedgerows, we've got scrubs. Like what kind of things might we be seeing over there? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So these canals help to connect up those wider landscapes. So we've got our really fantastic hedgerows. We think we've got around 2,000 miles of hedgerows because they're pretty much everywhere along our canals. And we've been trying to manage them in a traditional way where we can. So we get volunteers come out and they support us by uh, doing this really traditional management technique where you sort of cut through the base of the, um, the trees that are growing in the hedgerow and then you sort of fold them over so they stay alive and then they re-sprout upwards again and you sort of weave them together it's called hedge laying and that makes really bushy hedgerows that are fantastic for all sorts of species but particularly nesting birds who need that really bushy cover to protect them from predators and then coming down into the base of the hedgerow we have things like the small mammals so the wood mice the field mice the field voles they're all quite happy running around, hiding under logs and munching on the uh, insects that live in the hedgerow. Hedgerows are a fantastic feature because they're really good at connecting up the landscape. Things like bats use hedgerows to navigate their way through the landscape to get from really good foraging areas like they might have their roost in a tree in a woodland but then they might need to go to um, some still water or come to the canal to get the insects that feed off the top of the water or even for a drink so hedgerows are, are great and then they connect you up to woodlands along the Kennet and Avon Canal we have a new woodland called Jubilee Woodland that we planted about 10 years ago nearly 30,000 trees and so by having these canals, these waterways, the ribbons of blue and green corridors, we really can connect up all of those different habitats and give those species space to go, places where they can breed, places where they can live and feed. And so whilst they were made by man, the canals have really become important for nature. I know you're involved in a big project on the River Severn. I believe that with this one, the Canal and River Trust have been a major partner alongside the Environment Agency, the Seven Rivers Trust, Natural England and some other really big organisations, including the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, definitely. It's called Unlocking the Severn. And what that's all about is that when boats were coming up and down the Severn, transporting goods, there were some parts of the river that were really dangerous for them to navigate. So they built locks. And in building the lock to get around this particularly dodgy bit, it cut off a chunk of the land called a lock island. And then on the other side of the lock island, they built a weir to prevent the boats from going up around that way and to manage the water flow. Those weirs are really difficult for fish and other animals to get past. They're like if you're running a race and then you get to a great big brick wall that you have to try and jump over and it's like your life depends on getting over this wall and so you just keep throwing yourself at the wall. It's really quite sad when you think about it, like all these fish were being blocked by this weir. But we managed to successfully win some European money, life plus money, multi-million pounds worth. And we've been building fish passes to help the fish get round these weirs. Now, a fish pass, sometimes they're described as ladders, like a part of the river next to the weir that is made more natural again. So it's like they've dug out a trench and then inside that trench, they've got concrete to mimic boulders. And that slows the flow down of the river and it gives the fish a pathway that they can slowly make their way back up. And this project is particularly focused on a European protected species called the Twait Shad. They look a little bit like herring. They're a bit nondescript. They're quite small and silver. But these little fish have been unable to reach their pristine spawning grounds that are right at the top of the Severn, thanks to all of these blockages that man has put in the way. So once this fish pass project is finished, we're going to be building four big fish passes. The fish will be able to get all the way up to their breeding habitat. They'll have more success at breeding, which means more fish. And it's not just the twait shad. Loads of other fish species are going to benefit from this fish pass. Um, and so once we have more fish and then you go back to your food chains. So if you've got the fish down at the sort of lower levels, then the things that feed on the fish, like the otters and herrings, herrings, herons, <laughs> they all uh, will do much better because they've got a good food source. Um, so the, the, the fish pass project is going to have massive knock on implications for the, the habitats and the wildlife as a whole. It just makes me feel so much pride in, you know, the fact that this is the work that the Trust is doing in order to not only serve wildlife, but also ensure that people who may be passing by, people who may be engaging with the canals and waterways do have that ability to feel connected to, you know, have a life, have a species. And that's so important if we're going to really live a holistic life. So thank you so much for sharing that so far, Laura. But in terms of the support that your team gets then, because of course your team is doing some super important work you know how how are you guys getting the support that you need and what more support could people who may be listening go about providing yeah that's a great question um we try to improve the environment wherever possible we, we call them enhancements we try to to do enhancements so that might be uh, managing a grassland as a wildflower meadow um, you may have seen in the news recently that we're looking at trialing changes to our mowing regime so that we cut the grass a little bit less and so what we're hoping to do is to monitor the change that we're going to be making by reducing the mowing regime and we need people to tell us 
what they think. So if you've walked along your local stretch of canal and you've noticed that there are more flowers there and you like that, then please let us know. Like that's a that's definitely something that people can do. And we also work quite a lot with volunteers. So when I mentioned that we have like wildflower meadows, they need a very light touch in terms of management. You, you try to only cut them once a year. Um, and that's the sort of task that's best undertaken by a group of volunteers who have a real sense of ownership for that area. So people who live nearby, who want to come out, you know, once or twice a week and just potter around this patch of land and, and look after it for the benefit of all wildlife. Definitely. So it sounds like there's definitely some opportunities here for people who want to do the volunteering that you've mentioned to be able to engage. Yeah, definitely. We have um, volunteer groups on every canal and they do all sorts of different tasks for us from the sort of heritage and um, day to day maintenance of our important listed structures like our our listed locks and and, uh, bridges right the way through to helping us with these more environmental enhancements these things like planting new woodlands or managing grasslands in a different way or putting bird boxes up on the tree or hedge laying hedge laying is one of our key volunteer activities you know they love doing it it's like a green gym you come out you get fit you get a sense of accomplishment looking at the hedge how it was before you started and how incredible it looks when you're finished it's yeah there's loads of opportunities come and get involved 100 now thank you so much for sharing that laura i think this has been another one of those conversations where i'm leaving with so many things that i know for myself i've learned and i'm sure others are saying the same and i think the opportunity that exists for us to be able to be creative but also to be quite resilient and and focused as it relates to the way that we go about protecting wildlife and encouraging biodiversity. I think it's clear that the Canal and River Trust is not only playing our part, but I would argue even leading the way when it comes to this. So thank you so much for sharing, Laura. I appreciate your time. Yeah, no worries, Lewis. Nice to talk to you about it. So it's so good to hear that nature is thriving in the greener parts of England from Laura. But is the picture quite so pretty in the city? Canalcast chugged into the heart of Birmingham to speak to senior ecologist Paul Wilkinson to see how he's helping bring more of the wild into the West Midlands. Paul, great to meet you and thank you for joining us, man. Great to meet you too, Luce. So, Paul, I hear you're doing great things to bring wildlife into the city through a project called Wild in Birmingham, I believe. Tell us a little bit more about that and where did the idea come from? Yeah, so the West Midlands is an incredibly exciting place for canals. It's in the heart of the country and it connects those beautiful rural areas right through our cities and towns. And I was inspired maybe 10 years ago or more um, by people talking about the, the issues and the problems that nature has, the barriers. And the urban areas are one of the barriers. These, the canals offer fantastic corridors through our landscapes, north to south, east to west. And there are potential barriers that are very urban. And so the wild in Birmingham was created to look at, investigate those barriers and to uh, put nature right at the heart of the communities. Um, One of the things that's most important about it is that it's right next to people and it's the biggest wins as well. So doing small interventions brings nature right into urban areas. And wild in Birmingham is about bringing the best of the countryside right into the city centre. And often you try and separate the two, rural and urban, and we wanted to you know, we, we want to stop people jumping in cars, driving out to the countryside 
uh, going to very special sites and rural locations. Why can't they appreciate it on the doorstep? I'm loving the reasons as to why this was done. But talk to us about the process, Paul. Do you know what I mean? Tell us a little bit about, you know, how did this start? Like, what did you specifically have to do from a practical standpoint? Because, you know, to transform a space like this couldn't have been easy. It takes a lot of innovation. Um, the one thing that we're gifted with is um, innovative people in urban areas. So we, we formed a group and we looked at what people wanted. And beyond that, if people said you can't do that, that was a real challenge for us. So, you know, we're trying pomegranates and we're trying tropical fruits because the urban environment's a little bit warmer. And we absolutely want people to stop and say, what on earth is that doing here? It's that shock element because Birmingham is visited by millions of people. It, there's millions of people within easy access to it. And a lot of those people aren't going to see nature. They're going to shop and to work and to commute and to live. And I wanted to stop people and shock them because we're a well-being charity. And we've got to remember that a lot of the well-being is actually using our brains, asking questions, learning, as well as we've got to clean our air. So bringing vegetation to the city is a great thing for helping against pollution, as well as the most rewarding things are the communities that work there uh, or live there, sorry, um, using that space for their well-being, especially what we've just been through the last year. Um, you know, I've had comments coming back saying how, you know, it's got them through pretty tough days coming down and looking at the nature. That is impeccable. That's impeccable. I, I feel like you're you're speaking my love language here, Paul, because everybody knows that knows me, knows youth and community. From I hear that, I'm like, listen, I love it because, you know, people really do need to be able to support initiatives like this because not only does it give them something to do and to feel good about being able to contribute to, but more importantly, it sees us being able to take more responsibility and ownership over the environments that we all then share you know, and so for me, this is this is phenomenal to hear that, you know, the community's got behind it. From what I understand, the local authorities are even starting to see what's going on and wanting to support and get involved. So that's fantastic. Would you say that people are actually noticing a difference on their canals? Can they see more of that nature around them? Absolutely. And one of the unexpected results was that the, the volunteers that collect the litter have noticed within the first couple of years that the litter is reduced by at least 50%. And that is because people see that it's been um, respected and managed and they're less likely to drop litter. And we've actually got peaches and grapes and, and we know that people are stopping and eating them. And there are scented plants that stop people when the, and to sit down and take, a, you know, instead of rushing through the city centre, they're taking the time and, and acknowledging things. That we've had comments about the number of bees that, you, you know, and these are sometimes you take these things for granted. But when, you, when you're not surrounded by nature, you know, you realise how important these things really are and integral to our well-being. That's so, that's so cool, honestly. And one of the things that I was very excited to speak to you about, Paul, yeah, was that when I spoke to Peter, he mentioned some stuff around otters and some different wildlife as well. And I just, want, I just want you to talk to me a little bit more about the fact that we've got otters in the heart of Birmingham. Like, talk to me about this, Paul, please. This excites me. Okay, yeah. So one of our largest predators, um, an absolute indicator of environmental health there are so many things that need to be in place for an otter to to survive and thrive we've been working with volunteers for five years now and we have about 70 plus volunteers every february um, checking every bit of our canal network across the midlands and we know that from that we've been watching otters on the outskirts of the city center gradually moving into the point that two years ago 
we've got them right through the city centre now. And that is incredible because of the requirements of clean water. They need a lot of diverse food. You know, they need places to hide and shelter. And so it just tells you that we've got um, actually the environmental quality is improving. Considering the centre of Birmingham, when you talk to local residents in the 80s, there was no life in that canal. So the transformation has been incredible. Paul, I'm loving, I'm loving what Wild in Birmingham is all about. Specifically, though, how do you get nature to spread from the edge of the city right into the centre? So you have to look at the distances. So we know that there's a bat in Birmingham that will travel from Eastern Europe all the way across using the canals. So some species can migrate, um, no problem at all over long distances. Others are very, very restricted. Lots of different types of bumblebees, water voles are very vulnerable. So there are, you know, incredibly declining, declining species on our waterways and they're, they're fragmented and disconnected. So one of the things that we do for water voles that improves water quality and one of the reasons that the otter is able to move back into the cities is we're recreating canal banks on very hard locations so where you've got bricks and metal we can actually put this um, clear rolls which is a byproduct of the coconut industry and it's actually carbon neutral because it's taken from trees that are absorbing carbon all their life so it's a carbon neutral product we use it as a growing medium so it's absolutely fantastic for lining against hard bricks and planting up with all sorts of diverse plants. And we're creating, it looks like a totally natural canal bank or river bank, and it's full of wildlife. And what that does, it, all the fish start to breed, all the invertebrates, the damselflies and dragonflies, the water voles have got security as they reach it. So every so often we create these little areas. Honestly, this is impeccable. So now I want to I wanna know a bit more about this orchard though, because I'm told that it runs from Worcester to Wolverhampton, if I'm not wrong. So t tell us a bit more about this phenomenal orchard. Okay, so it all started in the wild in Birmingham. We obviously introduced um, orchard trees into wild in Birmingham because that's what we wanted to bring from, you know, it's a lovely thing in the countryside. There's places like Worcestershire that are renowned for their, their orchards. But again, a habitat in much decline. There is a lot of big decline in orchards. So... We wanted to bring that, that wild in Birmingham element and we thought, well, why should we just have a pocket right in the middle of the city centre? We can take this to Wolverhampton. We can take it to Worcestershire. We've got a canal corridor that is in unhindered. So we've got this potential orchard over 50 miles at least. And it will take a long time. You know, it's a big effort. There's lots of communities that are coming on and each community will have a say of how their orchard looks and what grows in it. We're, we're going to be definitely be using the uh, traditional varieties that are very rare in themselves. Right alongside that, we're putting in absolutely modern varieties because, you know, we want these modern varieties that produce a lot of very tasty apples straight off the tree. Uh, some of them are for, some of the old varieties are for cooking and for preserves. In the past, they wouldn't have been as interested in eating the fruit straight from the bush. It would have been a food source that gets you through the winter. So they'd have, they'd have looked at um, a much different type of fruit. So... And the actual looking at the apples, it seems such a traditional English uh, thing to do is to have an apple tree and an orchard. But the actual origin of the apple comes from Kazakhstan um, and it was, it was transported along the Silk Roads thousands of years ago. And it was propagated from these apples that naturally occur in Kazakhstan. And so I absolutely adore the thought of actually... Um, all the visitors to, to Birmingham, all the people that have um, moved into the area from all over the world 
actually they can look at what we're doing in the orchard and say actually i can i can see that this is a you know there's a part of this that the, the orchard isn't a traditional english orchard it's a world orchard so paul does the nature that you're creating reflect the history of birmingham in any way as well yep the canals link the past to the future um and i wanted very much the uh, projects that we do to reflect that as well so it's not about turning our back on what might have been there in the past and trying to do something new or reinventing a wheel. We look at how the canal system would have been used in the past and it would have been transporting all sorts of goods. And, and there's, there's names in the area like the Typhoon Basin, which reflect um, tea transportation, and the banana warehouse down in Digbeth, where bananas would have been transported on the canals. So actually one of the things uh, that climate change has given us now is that actually we can grow the hardy variety of tea we can grow a hardy variety of banana and it's an amazing structural uh, plant and, and it's one of those impact plants that people are going to stop and say, isn't that incredible? You don't need to travel a long way to Kew Gardens or something to see an impressive tropical plant anymore. So, Paul, that's, that's, that's brilliant to hear. And, you know, from what I understand, you know, work like this, which, of course, you know, you guys have led the way and set the example within Birmingham and the West Midlands is now starting to spread across the country. So from what I understand, there are colleagues in, you know, London, Manchester, Nottingham, Reading, who are also looking at how can they start to, you know, do something similar. So that's absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much for sharing that, Paul. Any last words from you? Anything that you think, you know, you'd love for people to just be aware of or something that you want to leave them with? The canals are so close to the hearts of the communities that they're, they're often um, really lacking in open space and good quality nature. Get down and, and explore your local canal. Let us know what you find. And more importantly, let us know what needs improving. Thank you so much for that, Paul. I appreciate you allowing us to bring the canal cast down here today. And thank you very much for sharing all of these wonderful successes with us. Thank you. Great to meet you. Well, thank you to Paul, Laura and Peter for that amazing introduction to our series. And over the coming episodes of Canalcast, we'll be hearing from more changemakers from across the Canal and River Trust. Tune in again next time as we look at the national health crisis facing our nation and how, especially during the pandemic, canals provided a vital escape for people, helping improve the nation's physical and mental health. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow, because we will be back soon. In the meantime, why not spend a little more time by water? <laughs>